Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about democratic socialism, American style. And for that, we turn to Kate Aronoff and Michael Kazin. Kate's writing has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, Jacobin, and The Nation. Michael is professor of history at Georgetown University and a co-editor of Dissent magazine, published widely, including The Nation. The two of them are co-editors, along with Peter Dreyer, of a new book. It's called We Own the Future, Democratic Socialism, American Style. Kate Aronoff and Michael Kazin, welcome back. Great to be here. Yeah, likewise. Well, in Donald Trump's 2019 State of the Union address, he said, quote, America will never be a socialist country, close quote. I'm not sure any previous president delivering any previous State of the Union speech made a statement like that. What do you make of it? What's its significance? What what Donald Trump and a lot of the right wing more generally is responding to uh, is the fact that there are a growing number of young people, as we point out in the book, who uh, are not sort of souls. It's not just young people. Um, There's a lot of people who were disenfranchised by the financial crisis or who have just been living, you know, for years and years within a system um, that hasn't worked for them for any number of reasons. And so um, there's this growing sense sort of voiced by politicians like Bernie Sanders, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, by a sort of growing movement of democratic socialists, um, that there is an alternative out there, that, you know, the system we live in now is not the only system, economic or otherwise, which can exist or which has ever existed or the only possible way that humans can organize themselves. And so this, you know, has a long, long history um, in the American right. Red baiting, of course, you know, was was pretty foundational to the 20th century. And so I think what we're seeing from politicians like Donald Trump uh, is this attempt to sort of revive these very old scripts about about the communist threat, about Soviet Russia, about, you know, now we get of lines about Venezuela and, and, and you know, these sort of uh, skeptors of, of socialism, um, these ghosts really, uh, and they're not really sticking, right? We have, you know, Bernie Sanders, a democratic socialist, polling consistently um, in, in the top spot in uh, the presidential election. Uh, you have, you know, record numbers of support, very high levels of support for policies like Medicare for All, the Green New Deal, which, you know, we can argue about whether they're socialist programs, but certainly represent a big break uh, from, from where the status quo has been in terms of, you know, policy in either the Republican or Democratic Party. Uh, and so uh, I think, you know, that is scary to to the Donald Trumps of the world. So, Michael, Bernie Sanders, of course, gets the credit for putting Democratic Socialism on the agenda, which he is doing inside the Democratic Party. That's not always the place socialist focus their energies on? 
No, and uh, we have an article right in the front of the uh, of this volume of We Are in the Future that Peter Dreyer and I wrote together, which details how um, you know socialism has a long history in this country, but uh, its history until fairly recently, uh, for recent decades, has really been as an independent party. There were different socialist parties from uh, from right after the Civil War uh, up really until the 1950s, 1960s. But as a third party, they never did very well. And one of the brilliant things that I think Sanders did and that uh, many people on Democrat Socialist America, the leading socialist organization in America, have signed on to as well, too, is if they feel that the Democratic Party is is open enough to uh, people on the left that they can be active in the party, they can put forth socialist ideas and programs and proposals in the party and win a lot of votes that way and also win some offices that way. So what what does socialism mean today in the United States? One way to answer that is to look at actually existing democratic socialist countries. I wonder what you see that is worth emulating in Sweden, Spain, Austria, I don't know, Finland, the happiest country on earth. Uh, what we lay out in the book is that there are a lot of lessons that we can look to um, from, you know, what we what we think of this, as a sort of actually existing social democracy. So Sweden, Finland, Denmark, uh, Norway, um, but they're, you know, real lessons. They have uh, societies in which um, upward mobility is actually possible in, in a certain way, uh, that there is a safety net such that, you know, people are not sort of fighting for survival in the same way that they do in the United States. They, of course, have universal health care, as do most industrialized countries. Um, things like Childcare uh, are much more generous than they are here. Um, levels of environmental protection, which are much more generous than they are here, even in places which have managed to carve out, um, you know, cities which are have been controlled by social democrats and democratic socialists for a long time. Um, in particular, Vienna, um, you have uh, only one third of, of the city's housing stock is uh, is privately owned. A third of it is cooperative. A third of it is publicly owned. And people love it, right? That's a system that's been around for a very long time. It's constantly improving. It's constantly expanding and looks a lot different. You know, there's a very different relationship to public goods than, than we have here in the United States where, you know, I live in New York City. We have a, a public housing system which has been sort of systematically disinvested from, is, you know, really in disrepair. And that sort of feeds this narrative that public goods are the sort of last resort. Whereas in a city like Vienna, um, you have really beautiful public housing that people are excited to live in um, and that you can actually afford to live in. And it's not just in Europe. Bernie talks about fulfilling the rest of the New Deal agenda of FDR that was announced in the 30s and 40s. Michael, what do we find there that's relevant today? Well, FDR, one of his last big speeches, uh, he talked about an economic bill of rights, uh, building on the civil liberties and the, the original bill of rights, uh, many of which had just been extended, actually, uh, to every state uh, by the Supreme Court at the time. And, you know, this is at the core, I think, of what socialism should mean. That is, uh, as, as Kate was saying, that there are certain things, housing, transportation, right to a job, right to a clean environment, uh, cheap and reliable, sustainable uh, transportation, uh, and an environment generally uh, that, you know, really are, everyone should have a good birthright. And, and FGR was talking about that, not about the environment, because that was not yet a big, big issue uh, in the country. Uh, but 
Michael Walzer, longtime co-editor of, of, of Dissent Magazine, as, as many uh, people out there know, and great public, uh, uh, a great political theorist, you know, has talked about having a decent society, you know, a morally decent society. And I think, you know, every, every, every human being, you know, having the right to um, uh, these goods that everyone needs without having to, uh, including healthcare, of course, too, without having to uh, divest all their budget, without having to, uh, you know, borrow lots of money, uh, um, is something which which socialists have always stood for and, and something which, uh, as Kate was saying, has become more and more popular, I think, uh, these ideas. And, and of course, the reason why it's so important to have democratic socialism is because, you know, we have to, you know, be able to convince a majority of people uh, to support these ideas. And FDR was beginning uh, to make that argument. And unfortunately, he, uh, he died before he really could uh, uh, do much about it. He didn't really uh, serve much at all of his, of his fourth term in office. But really, that is still the vision, I think, of, of people who call themselves socialists in this country. Of course, the most fundamental threat we all face now is the climate crisis. Is there a distinctly socialist approach to reducing the speed of climate change? Yeah, I mean, I would say that any viable socialism in the 21st century needs to be eco-socialism. And Naomi Klein has a great essay in The Conscience, really, lays this out, which is that the sort of logic of extraction of, you know, this idea that we can dominate the earth, that, um, you know, natural resources are just sort of there for the taking and the plunder, um, that has really transcended political systems uh, in in the last, you know, 300, 400 years. And there were socialist societies, I mean, most notably the Soviet Union, which were not, of course, environmentally friendly, um, in part because that wasn't sort of a frame that existed. Um, but, you know, in part because that was a, a that was a different belief system. We do have examples of societies which have lived in, in better harmony with the earth, um, which have, you know, managed to sort of store resources in a way that's been more responsible. Um, and so I think we, you know, have to look there, too, to sort of the ways that for instance, many indigenous communities have, have you know, looked toward the land to uh, to not, you know, pursue the same sort of, you know, path of development that, that Western, that a lot of Western societies have. And so I think, you know, any, any socialism today really needs to reckon with that reality. So the goal cannot just be, for instance, expanding production, however sort of democratically managed that production is, however much control sort of workers have over over those functions, uh, that is is not going to work. Um, it's not you know going to have a huge lifespan if if it's still sort of in this very extractive mindset of just sort of producing more and more and more um, for the sake of you know for the sake of that. Um, and so you know I think what we are arguing in terms of a sort of ecosystem vision for the 20th century um, and in particular. United States is a move away from that. And I think that's very in line with what socialists have been arguing um, for a very long time, which is, you know, really to value all kinds of work um, to to really lift up um, what are today some of the most, you know, actually militant labor uh, sectors that are, you know, doing the most militant labor organizing. For instance, teachers, nurses um, have been, you know, striking for the last, teachers in particular have been striking for the last you know, the last several years from the Chicago teachers to Red for Ed. So uh, really looking to honor that work in a way that other countries, which, you know, are either social democracies or, or you know, something at, at, at democratic systems in various ways, um, just value that work in a way that we don't in this country. And so I think um, really sort of rethinking what it is that society values and what it is that we're chasing um, really, I think, puts us on a path that's not just more humane, that's better for 
you know, the majority of people, but also is, is sort of more in line with, with the reality of the climate crisis that we're facing. If I could just add, John, uh, to what Kate was saying, I mean, you know, the root of socialism, of course, is social, which means uh, in terms of climate change, there was no you know, individualist, uh, solely national way to solve the problem of climate change. You know, this has got to be a collective endeavor. It has to be a voluntary collective endeavor, of course, but it's got to be an endeavor of communities, of cities, of nations working with other nations, you know, working class groups, working with other working class groups and so forth. And and that, in some ways, is is you know, uh, it makes it makes sense to have a, a socialist uh, program for climate change because socialists have always been in favor of of collective efforts to change society and have always looked askance at you know individuals, rich individuals especially, who think that you know they can solve the problems by themselves by by setting up companies and, and making a profit and so doing. Uh, you know, some people can probably make a profit from from uh, you know building you know solar collectors, solar panels, and so forth. That's certainly true. But a real solution to the problem of climate change has got to be a collective one, a communal one, if you will. Uh, and that's something which socialists have always really advocated, even before uh, climate change uh, became a, a problem. We're recording this in the wake of Trump's assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. In the immediate aftermath of that attack, Bernie Sanders described it as a dangerous escalation and promised to end American wars in the Middle East. Elizabeth Warren followed similarly. and But Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg suggested that the killing of Soleimani might have been justified, quote, if a more responsible commander-in-chief was in charge, close quote. I wonder if there is a distinctive socialist foreign policy for America in the Mideast right now? Well, uh, you know, I think socialists would disagree about, about the various issues. Uh, we have a very good article uh, in the anthology about what a socialist foreign policy would look like. But, um, you know, I think it's uh, important, first of all, to understand that uh, if you want a peaceful world, you uh, you know, you have to find ways to limit armaments on all sides. Uh, the United States, of course, has far, far more weapons of all kinds uh, than any other nation uh, on Earth and has used them, you know, not very helpful ways, with some rare exceptions uh, like World War II. Uh, so, you know, I think that's that's part of a social alternative to current foreign policy is to figure out how to work in a multinational way to uh, limit armaments uh, on all sides. I'll just, you know, sort of speak for the the piece in the book, which I think is really tremendous on foreign policy, um, which, you know, says sort of two things. So one, uh, it says more things than that. I would encourage everyone to read um, read the essay because it's really fantastic. Um, but but first off, that you know, a lot of this really does start at home. I mean, I mean, it was Coretta Scott King uh, who said the United States, and I'm butchering this quote, I'm sure. Um, has really never grappled with what it means to build a peacetime economy, right? And so um, there are ways that there uh, we we have you know an economy which is built in many ways around around war. Um, and so um, part of how we can look to you know really rethinking foreign policy is to you know do things like pass pass a federal job guarantee to make sure that you know the only option for working class folks who are you know graduating from high school who want healthcare who want to go to college. Um, that the sort of last resort for them is not to join the military, which, you know, is the closest thing this country has had to to a job guarantee, um, which, you know, was a long time demand. Full employment was a long demand of the Democratic Party um, not so long ago. And so really thinking about the ways that the military is sort of 
ingrained in, in, in everyday life, you know, not necessarily in places like uh, where I live in New York City, but in, in a lot of rural and suburban communities, um, there are um, economies which have, you know, historically had very close ties to either military bases or military contractors. And so really sort of, you know, taking the challenge um, of socialism as one to really build a peacetime economy worth, worth its salt. And also, you know, to really seek out solidarity uh, with people abroad. And so not not having a sort of uh, America first mindset that uh, we are sort of dictating foreign policy to the rest of the world and we know it's best, but but finding as socialists real allies um, in, in other countries, whether that's allied governments or social movements or, you know, opposition parties that we can um, we can sort of work with. And I think, you know, Bernie Sanders has, has really sort of tried to make inroads toward that in, you know, working with, with folks from around the world um, to sort of think about what not just the sort of foreign policy would be, which I think, you know, can lend itself to a kind of neocon approach, um, but real internationalism, um, which is something obviously that socialists have been good at. The book is We Own the Future, Democratic Socialism, American Style. It includes chapters on sports, on banks, on work, healthcare, campaign finance, immigration, and families. We've been speaking with two of the editors, Kate Aronoff and Michael Kazin. Kate and Michael, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Thank you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 